Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a real special guest by the name of Sean Cannon. You might not recognize his name, but you should, because Sean is a very well-known actor. He was born November 2nd, 1966. And not only is he an actor, he's a producer, an author, and a TV host. He's best known for certain things. Quartermain on General Hospital, Dean Sharp on The Bold and the Beautiful and The Young and the Restless. But you'll probably know him as Mike Barnes in The Karate Kid 3 and maybe as Sam Stevens on Studio City. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Dr. Leck. It's a real pleasure to be with you. You know, it's really nice to see you in, in real life. As as we were talking before, we've shared some community work uh, in, you know, let me just go over. How do you feel about charity and helping people in your life? How important is that in your life and your life philosophy? You know, it's, it's integral to my life philosophy. It's one of the... Uh, the cornerstones of what I talk about in my book, Way of the Cobra. I think service is incredibly important. Um, you know, giving back, uh, somebody said, I don't know who, but they said the, the easiest way to get what you want out of life is to help other people get what they want without any agenda. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so true. Um, Anthony Robbins talked about a story where his children got a bunch of Christmas presents, I think. And he said, look, you can, you can keep all these presents if you like, and that's, that's great. Or we could get out of the hospital and you could give some kids that, that aren't quite as fortunate some presents. And it's true I, it, that I think it really does feel better to give back than to get a lot of the time, most of the time, at least for me, it does. And um, uh, for, for me, it's, it's, it's one of the ways that I, I lead my life. It's incredibly important to me. And, um, you know, I, there, there's so many different ways that you can you can do it. I mean, people make donations and things like that. But just giving your time to someone, mentoring someone, uh, it's, it's really critical. We're all in this together, basically. So I look at it. Yeah, I, I think your book, The Way of the Cobra, is best described it as the endless circle of helping yourself by helping others. And I, I think that's the best way to describe it. Now, in your book, you say a lot of things, but I want to take you back to when you were 21 in a hotel room in Las Vegas and you were dying because your belly was full of blood. I think it was at that time. Tell me about that. Well, okay. So it wasn't a hotel room. What had happened was uh, it was uh, December 31st, 1989. And uh, I had been filming uh, The Karate Kid 3 for probably about two and a half weeks. And we broke for Christmas. I went to Las Vegas with a friend. And I had been experiencing some uh, significant pain in my left thigh, which I attributed to all the karate. So I was taking a lot of aspirin. Well, in reality, uh, I 
had internal bleeding and the aspirin was exacerbating the bleeding because it's a blood thinner. And the pain that I was having was the blood dripping down on my femoral artery. So I was in the Dunes Casino, uh, where every good young man wants to be on Christmas Day. And uh, I, I looked at my friend and I said, you know, I think I'm going to pass out. And I, I passed out and I came to and the EMTs were there and uh, they said, look, we got to get him to the emergency room right away. He's bleeding to death. And uh, I found myself in the emergency room and later the operating room uh, fighting for my life. And I was 21 years old. And it was one of the most profound and terrifying experiences of my life. But I, I talk about it in the book uh, because I link it up to a lesson that I discuss that, you know, very rarely do human beings get the 30,000 foot view of what's going on and things that may initially ostensibly seem negative with the expansion of time often proved to be some of the most amazing experiences that we've ever had. Um, and in retrospect, uh, I wouldn't change that experience for everything. I had to, uh, after I had emergency surgery and woke up with a 12 inch scar in my abdomen, uh, I received a call from the director, John Abelson, who had uh, directed the first, uh, the karate kid and the karate kid Two. He won the Oscar for, Rocky and told me in pretty much no uncertain terms that if I didn't make it back to the set within about 10 days or so, they were going to recast the role. And um, I had fought so hard to get into the film and I was, uh, you know, my, my disappointment and the other myriad of emotions I was feeling really quickly um, gave way to waking something inside of me. And I willed myself to get back into the film and um, like I said, it was one of the greatest experiences uh, that I've ever had in my life. Yeah, you and I share something in that way. You know, in 2003, I was walking in Disneyland with my dear wife, Lucy, and she turned to me and said, what's wrong with you, hon? You know, I was taken aback, Sean. For once in my yeah. life, I hadn't said anything wrong. I yeah. hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't even thought anything wrong. But yeah. she persisted. What's wrong with you? And I, I said, what do you mean, dear? She said, listen to your foot. I said, what do you mean, listen to your foot? That's the stupidest thing you've ever said. And she said, no, listen to it. And my right foot had suddenly and mysteriously developed a right foot drop. It was slapping on the pavement with each step I was taking. And she said, what's going on? Did you have a stroke? I said, doctor, dear, you've, you're a doctor. I'm a doctor. If I had a stroke, I'd probably be lying on the pavement right now, babbling something unintelligible. Right. Well, she said, when you get back, you better get this checked out. So right. she she insisted I get this checked out. So what do you do when your wife insists you get something checked out, Sean? You get it checked out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do if you know what's good for you. So yeah, I got yeah. back. I saw hundreds of doctors and they did every test known to man. They did CAT scans. They did brain scans. They did scan scans. And you know what they showed at the end of the day, Sean? What they show? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So you know what doctors do when they find absolutely nothing? Uh, no. What do they do? More tests. <laughs> More tests. And they, even did, they, they even invent tests to try and find the answer. And so I think they did tests that didn't even exist then. And, and at the end of it, there was still nothing wrong. So they sent me to a world-leading neurologist. And... 
I walked into the neurologist and he said, you better be sitting down when I tell you this. Oh, no. You, you have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Get your affairs in order. You're going to be dead in six months. Oh, good Lord. Wow. You know, that was 2006. And, you know, it's now uh, 2022 and I'm still thriving and doing well. Amazing. But, you know, they made the wrong diagnosis. I had chronic Lyme's disease and it's a mimicker of all these other diseases. And, you know, I started on the right treatment after a prolonged journey to get there. But again, we ended up in the same place. It really changed my life. It really caused me to look at my life. It really caused me to figure out a way to do things. And I stayed as a top cosmetic doctor, despite the fact that my right leg wasn't working and my right hand wasn't working. I became the greatest left-handed surgeon of all time because I could do everything with my left hand that my right hand couldn't do. And so it's adapt and overcome, right? Exactly. And it's like you did in the Cobra Kid day, in the Karate Kid, how you learn certain postures and things like that to do things. And it's amazing. Now, in your book, you say a couple of things. You say you are born a winner. Take responsibility. Go through the pillars that a, a Cobra has that are very important that way. Well, COBRA is an acronym based on the word character, optimization, balance, respect, and abundance. And uh, the two things that you just mentioned uh, are in the very beginning of the book. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people get, they get sucked into this, this quagmire of thinking that somehow the universe is against them. And I don't think, I think that nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I talk about the fact that, you know, how does a baby know not to breathe underwater? It intuitively knows. Um, it, you know, it's in our DNA to survive. How do I know that? Well, because for 200,000 years, Homo sapiens were not the apex predators. You know, we were running around trying not to get eaten by saber-toothed tigers. And the saber-toothed tigers are now, uh, you know, a footnote in an uh, anthropology book. And we are now the dominant species. So you have to accept the fact that the universe wants you to win. It's, it's ingrained in our DNA. You know, the second thing is that we have largely in, in our lifetime, people have become very comfortable with um, self-victimization. You know, we have a society that frequently uh, is so afraid of shaming anyone that everybody gets a ninth place trophy and life doesn't work that way. And, you know, you know, everything starts with personal responsibility and accepting that wherever you are in your life is the sum total of the decisions that you've made that has brought you there. And if you're not happy with where you are in your life, um, you know, you, you really don't have a whole lot else to blame but yourself. Of course, there are people who have had, you know, devastating and horrible things happen to them. But victimhood is a choice. You know, you may be a victim of something that happens to you, but perpetuating that is a choice. And I think if, if you can accept those two things, the universe wants you to win and um, that, you know, personal responsibility, where you are is who you are. Now you're ready to learn. You know, that's something that we write in and you write in your book, The Way of the Cobra, and I write in my book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life. But, you know, that is actually the saying of Epictetes from 2000 B.C. And he really? wrote, it's not what happens to you. 
It's what you do with what happens. Yeah. 2000 BC, he wrote that. Now, Epictetus was a rather interesting guy. He was born a slave and he ah. became a free man by the deeds that he did. So he literally had to come from slavery all the yeah. way to become a, a free man uh, because of doing the right things. Yeah. So, you know, we, you and I, Sean, haven't had to live in real slavery, uh, but we certainly have lived a life where we had had to do certain things to get where we are. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are. And we took responsibility along your way. And, and your wife says it perfectly. And she says, don't find yourself. Define yourself. That is beautiful from your book. Oh, that, my wife, my wife is, I always call her, she's a queen cobra. She is so full of wisdom and has taught me so much uh, that I, I do frequently uh, reference her in the book. And, uh, you know, yeah, and I always say to people, listen, before you think that I'm, uh, you know, levitating above the ground on top of some mountain in Kathmandu, uh, I wrote this book because I've made every one of the mistakes in it a dozen times over. And, you know, I look at myself as the, the book is structured that I'm the sensei, which means teacher in Japanese, and you're my student in my dojo, the dojo of Cobra Life. And, you know, I, I look at my job as being... Um, uh, a bit of a Sherpa, you know, to, to, to help people up the mountain and point out, um, you know, where potential pitfalls all are, but not to hoist you on top of the mountain because you have to do that yourself. The Karate Kid 3, uh, Mike, uh, what, what was the character's name? It's Mike Barnes, Karate's Bad Boy. Yes. And, and you've lived the bad boy a lot of the times in every role that you've taken. Now, are you a bad boy? You know, I think there was a time in my life when I certainly um, uh, <laughs> colored outside the lines a bit, but uh, I definitely not now. You know, um, I, I, I think that um, the fact that I've lived a full and colorful life um, rather than maybe the life of somebody that uh, has has been a little more shielded from some of um, life's realities and, and, and pitfalls and mistakes um, has at least afforded me a better perspective to try and communicate and relate with people. Um, so I am, I'm no longer a bad boy. <laughs> Let's okay, say that. Now, if you were to choose one of the characters you portrayed in all the things you've done, which character would you be? I mean, you've been on General Hospital, you've been on these other soaps, you've been in The Karate Kid 3. Which one of those characters is closest to the real Sean Cannon? Well, certainly not Mike Barnes, that, that's for sure, because he was a, you know, a, a, a violent psychopath. Um, um, you know, I, I, think, I think that there are bits and pieces of me uh, in, in every one of the characters that I play. Um, you know, the character that I play on Studio City, which is the show I created, it's on Amazon Prime, is, um, uh, you know, I wrote it for myself. Um, and I, I like to say that he's kind of a Xerox version of me. You know how when you, you photocopy something and, and you've, you've made about six or seven copies that it starts to get less and less clear. So Sam is like about six or seven photocopies down the road as far as, you know, where he is in life and his his growth and evolution. Um, so he's kind of like a, maybe an earlier version of me. 
Uh, there's also a lot of aspects of my character, Deacon Sharp on Bold and the Beautiful, that I think um, I, I share in common. Uh, so, I, you know, I think, you know, as an actor, you're, you're just trying as best you can to infuse who you are into the life of the characters you play. Cool. In your book, you go through how you had to grow into becoming an actor, that you had to literally uh, put yourself on the couch or work with people so you can become an actor by learning to become the person you are, by becoming, by controlling your emotions, by learning how to be an actor. Can you go through that process a bit? Sure. You know, I came out to Los Angeles, May 20th, 1987. And, uh, you know, like a lot of young guys who were pursuing their dream of becoming an actor, I, you know, I had youthful good looks and I had, you know, sort of a presence and charisma, but I was not a trained actor. And I, I got some fairly big roles pretty quickly. And then the phone stopped ringing. And I realized that I had kind of, uh, you, you know, the Peter principle that you you uh, rise to the highest level of your incompetence. Yeah, Lawrence J. Peter, University of Victoria, you rise oh, boy, to the you level. Okay. You rise to the level of incompetence and stay there. <laughs> well, I didn't stay there, so I, I was at least um, had enough self awareness to realize that if I was going to. Uh, you know, be able to do what I wanted to do, which was to have a career as a serious professional actor. I needed to uh, treat it with respect and and educate myself. And so uh, besides getting into uh, acting class, uh, I started doing theater, which I think is some of the best training that you can have. And uh, you know, through a lot of hard work and a lot of perseverance and a lot of rejection and struggle, um, you know, here I am 35 years later and, uh, you know, I'm still learning. Uh, but I think that, you know, you know, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell talks about it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. And I was thinking about that when I was listening to, I was listening to his book in the car one time, uh, the outliers and, uh, outliers rather. And I started thinking 10,000 hours, that's a whole lot. But then I started doing the math in my head. You know, I've done over a thousand episodes of network television. And so I, I, I realized I exceeded 10,000 hours. I'd done much more than 10,000 hours. And, um, you know, I, I think that whatever it is that you want to pursue, uh, it's imperative that you treat it with with respect and do everything you can to learn everything about it so that you can be the best at it that you can be. Yeah. And I think that's very important as well. I think you need to rise above it. And in your book, you say there are two motivators for everybody in life. One is love and the Mm -hmm. second is fear. Can you expound on that a bit? Well, it's pretty simple. You know, if, if you boil down every, reason why people change it boils down to either love or fear now fear wears a lot of different masks it comes in it comes in different forms but it really boils down to you know fear of losing what we have fear of not achieving what we want um fear of success which a lot of people think sounds oxymoronic why would you be afraid of success but uh you would be surprised when people start to achieve success 
how they, they self-sabotage sometimes because they're now out of their comfort zone and human beings don't like to be out of their comfort zone. Love is the other great motivator. Love, you know, uh, wars have been fought over it. Mountains have been moved because of it. And it's, it's still, I think, the most powerful force in the universe. And these are the two things that when you really distill down all the reasons that people do things, you wind up with those two. Yes, somebody... You know, so many kids now, it's funny. So many kids, when you ask them, what do you want to do? I want to be famous. Why, why, why do you want to be famous? And a lot of it is because they, you know, they uh, see commercials on TV that tell them that they need this or that to be successful. Or they look at the, you know, the bloated Instagram feeds of celebrities parading their conspicuous consumption uh, across social media. And they say, that's what I want. But when you really distill it down, it's because they want to feel heard. They want to feel loved. They want to feel a sense of connection. And uh, it, it takes us right back to love. Um, the other, you know, the other one is fear. Um, so, that's- And let's go into that fear a little bit. Sure. On page 60 of your book, Sean, you talk about an episode where you showed your fear of heights and you had uh-huh. to transform. Tell us about that one. So I was uh, I was doing a reality show that I really didn't want to be doing, but uh, I needed the money at the time and they paid me uh, a lot of money to go do it. And we would have these different challenges. And one of them uh, was that we went to the top of the Santa Monica Mountains uh, overlooking the, the Pacific Ocean. It was absolutely beautiful. And when we, we got out of the, uh, the SUVs that they had chauffeured us up there in, and I'm looking at this strange cacophony of wooden poles and wires. And I kind of got very quickly what it was. It was a confidence course, which is a course that you, uh, you have to physically try and defeat and it's elevated above the ground, and I don't like heights at all. And so um, looming in the distance was this um, 100-foot-tall telephone pole, and in front of it was suspended a trapeze bar about six feet in front of it. And it was very windy that day. The bar was blowing back and forth. And ultimately, I had to climb up this pole and hoist myself onto uh, the top of the surface of the pole, which was about the size of a salad plate. And um, what, you know, we were belayed. You know, we, I, I knew that I wasn't going to fall to my death. But, you know, heights is very much a mental thing. And uh, the the challenge was not only to climb up the pole, but to jump off the pole and grab the trapeze. And it was a metaphor for, you know, for letting go of fear. And I remember that I just, you know, I thought to myself, just trust the universe. The universe, it'll, it'll catch you. And I, I just flung myself uh, to catch the trapeze bar. And I just will never forget that the feeling of gripping that, that steel bar, knowing that I'd made it. And it was absolutely exhilarating. Um, it did not cure my dislike for heights, but it did show me that I do have the ability to, you know, overcome that anxiety, uh, you know, when my head's clear and I'm committed. Okay. Now in your book, you do the world, a great service by going through many things to help people overcome fear. And uh, maybe we could cover maybe a couple of those right now so people can can help to control their their fear. But I encourage everybody to get a copy of this book. Don't just listen to these couple of things. Get the book. It's important to do so. 
Yeah, it's at wayofthecobra.com. Okay, go ahead, Chad. Well, you know, look, here's the thing. I mean, how many times have we all swirled in this miasma of what could be, you know, uh, projecting what could happen? And so often, almost always, uh, you know, the fears that we conjure up in our heads never come to be. Uh, and, and very often, if they do, they're not as bad as we think. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of staying in the present, because when you stay in the present, you're not getting anxious over what might happen. Yeah, to me, Sean, uh, fear means false expectations appearing uh, real. Absolutely. Uh, that's what it is. Ninety five percent of what we're afraid of never happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, a lot of times if if what does come to be that we're afraid of, you know, there are times that it, it winds up, again, with the expansion of time, proving to be something that's a value, a value to us. But look, I, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of, of nuts and bolts stuff. So let me give you a couple little strategies uh, to deal with fear. You know, uh, if, if it's something that is um, immediate, and if you're experiencing physiological effects of anxiety and fear, one of the best things to do is called box breathing. Uh, the Navy SEALs do it. Box breathing is when you simply draw in your breath for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, exhale for a count of four, wait for a count of four, and do it again. And it, it slows your heart rate down. Uh, it allows you to focus, and it allows you to shut out the monkey chatter a lot of times, which comes in the form of your internal critic or uh, external voices, all that sort of stuff. That's a great strategy. Another one is to just to make a list and say, okay, if this were to happen, what are the absolute worst things that would, would happen in my life if it happens? And, you know, you write down four or five things and you realize four of them probably are insane. And you look at the one that maybe that is real and then say, okay, well, if that happened, you know, what could I do to mitigate it? And by the time you sort of get it down on paper and look at it, you're, you're shrinking this giant looming beast down to something that's a lot more manageable. And that I call the positive power of negative preparation. By looking at the obstacles in your way, you know what they are. And so you are posit turning a negative situation into a very positive one. Absolutely. Uh, you know, everybody deals with fear and it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, uncomfortable feeling. Um, but you know, you know, fear is also something that can be a teacher. You know, I talk a lot about how failure can be a teacher and also can be a teacher. And um, uh, you, you have to you have to discipline yourself to be able to um, to deal with fear in a way that it doesn't become paralyzing. Um, you know, and I think that comes with a lot of practice and life experience and, and discipline. But anybody can do it. That, that's huge. That's huge. <laughs> Educating yourself, investigate, inform, inquire, or other things you bring to the table. And the, one of the greatest things that the way of the Cobra does is controlling your thoughts. That, that is a very important thing. And I think that's something that uh, people don't realize that we can control our thoughts. They're not random actions that we just put out there. We can put some form and function on them and make them work for us. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, you know, the concept of control is a complete illusion. You know, people, people get very um, wrapped up in trying to, 
control things. The only thing that we can control is our response to external stimuli, how we choose to emotionally respond to something that's happening. If you think you're in control, all you got to do is go walk outside and take a look at our sun and realize that it is a dying star in some some Sometime in the very distant future, it's going to go supernova and it's going to completely devour the Earth. So if you still think you're in control after that, uh, then you need to really do some, some, some hard thinking. The only thing you can control is how you relate to, uh, you know, to events that occur to you. And one of the ways that you can do that is by wrangling your mind, by controlling your thoughts, not allowing them to run away like an unbridled horse. And again, it takes, it takes discipline. Um, you know, it's not, you know, in my life, it's not something that I always do effectively. No one does. Um, but becoming aware of it and working to do that is the first step. That's huge, Sean. Ladies and gentlemen, we're visiting today with Sean Cannon, one of Hollywood's superlative actors you know him from some of the soaps you know him from the karate kid three and and you know him from many many other things sean is not just an actor we all pigeonhole people yeah you you know that and I, i sometimes think of actors as people that just want to do something to be a a prop in front of things, somebody that just wants to play a role, somebody that wants to do things. Now, Sean, I know that's not you. You're a real person. You are an amazing person. You do a lot. And one of the things you do is help people find themselves. And in your book, you go through a lot about your inner critic, the Mm -hmm. inner critic inside of you. And I think we need to bring that home for our audience today because the people have to understand that inner critic and how it hurts you and how it can help you. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, every one of us has an inner critic and they always, our inner critic always seems to appear at the most inopportune time. It's the moment that you're looking in for uh, a date and your inner critic tells you you're too fat, you'll never be loved, they're never going to like you, or you're about to step foot into uh, a huge interview for a new job. And, you know, the inner critic um, is, is that negative tape that runs in your mind. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing about the inner critic is it's actually, um, it's actually sort of a defense system that seeks to protect you. The problem is your inner critic's a horrendous communicator. It does it in a way that is really insulting and demeaning and all of that sort of stuff. So where's the inner critic come from? It, it comes from a time when we were probably very young, when we were not fully formed people and not able to handle or understand a lot of situations. We attempted to do things and then we failed or we were chastised and criticized by people that were, you know, supposed to love us. And then what happens is every time you go and you try something uh, new out of your comfort zone uh, or or something where you have not necessarily had um, success in the past, up pops the inner critic and starts telling you why you can't do it. And um, one of the things I talk about in the book is coming up with a tangible uh, representation of your inner critic. And it can be anything. It can be uh, a stuffed animal. It can be a photo. It can be anything at all. 
And, uh, you know, for me, I, it sounds silly, but I gave my inner critic a name. His name is Timmy and he's this petulant little, you know, six year old kid that stomps his feet and, you know, tells me all sorts of reasons why I can't do this and that. And whenever, whenever he pops up, you know, my deal is that I'll, I'll listen to him for about five seconds. And then I shut him up and I send him to his room. And what it does, it sounds silly, right? But what it does is it makes me laugh. I get this visualization of this little kid stomping around, throwing a tantrum, and it makes me smile and it breaks my, my it takes me into a different state. And now I'm in a state where I'm laughing. I think it's funny. And then I'm able to segue from there into a state of feeling, you know, successful and ready and prepared. I think that's really important. I think you now have transitioned from where you were to where you want to be. And, and giving that inner critic an identity, you do very well. And I think that's important. I, and I think you said something in this that you actually have forgotten about in your book and that you laugh. And laughing is a very important part. I don't see enough laughter in your book. And, and maybe in book two, you're going to have to concentrate on the Sean Cannon that laughs a bit. Because yeah. I know you laugh. And I, I know you laugh time. at yourself. And oh. I know all that. But the yeah. book doesn't have a lot about laughter. And we got to put some more laughter into it. <laughs> well, I think, listen, I, I, a lot of the time in the book, uh, you know, the tone that I use, I think, is is somewhat the way that I talk. And I, I, I really enjoy making people laugh. I, I love to laugh at myself. There's just such a an endless um, reservoir of material to draw upon to laugh at myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, it is very important. You know, laughing is... Um, you know, it has a physiological effect. I mean, it's really difficult to be in a bad mood, feel afraid, feel uh, um, anxious when you're laughing. And, uh, you know, again, it goes back to what I said about the inner critic. You know, if you can if you can find something that is a tangible representation of your inner critic and then see the humor in it and how ridiculous it is, uh, it, it keeps you out of a negative headspace and and in anxiety, it keeps you in the present. And that's what you need to do to be able to achieve what lies in front of you. Yeah, the word laugh is actually a very important word. And it was taught to me by a humorist by the name of Alan Klein. I don't know if you've listened to him at all. Uh, I have not. He is a person that calls himself the world's only jollyologist. He's coined that word, and he's That's a like professional that. speaker up in his 80s now. But he talks about and the word laugh means let go. The yeah. A stands for attitude. The U stands for Y-O-U, because he couldn't find something that went with the letter U. The G is get going, and the H is humor eyes. And, and you got to look at things with humor eyes. Absolutely. So I'm gonna, I, I think that's something we can all learn from and, and take it home for us and become somebody that itself. Now, another thing you talk about, Sean, is forgiveness. Let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. Well, I talk a lot about apologizing uh, and I talk about forgiveness and, you know, we, you know, humans tend to carry these stories with them uh, that too often wear like anvils around our neck that are just completely debilitating. You know, uh, when, when you, when you've transgressed with somebody, and fail to ask for forgiveness, to, you know, fail to ask for an apology. Uh, you're, you're carrying that psychic baggage around uh, because you know internally 
that you've not only transgressed, but you haven't done anything to try and rectify the situation. Um, you know, and, and so often people, they, I really, I really dislike this, this uh, phrase that people tend to use. I'm sorry if you felt that way. Well, that's, that's not an apology. Uh, you know, an apology is I am sorry that I did A, B, and C. What can I do to make it better? And it won't happen again. And, you know, uh, apologizing is not always easy, but it's so freeing because it frees the other person from the resentment that they're most likely carrying around to you. And it frees you from all of the, the psychic baggage and anxiety and remorse that, that most um, normal human beings, unless you're a sociopath, uh, carry around when they know they've done something wrong. And so there's this, this great book um, called The Medium is the Message by Dr. Marshall McLuhan, who was a communications professor and also appeared in Annie Hall with Woody Allen. And uh, it's called The Medium is the Message. And it means that very often the mediums that we use to communicate with people are oftentimes more important than the message that is said. I'll give you an example. Um, you've, uh, you've been with somebody for 10 years in a relationship. You want to leave the relationship and you leave them a post-it note on the orange juice in the refrigerator saying it's over. Oh my God. <laughs> not really quite the same as, as, as sitting down with them and having a connected conversation where you're, you know, you know, you're offering your perspective and listening to theirs. Um, you know, uh, social media and the internet, are incredible tools that have afforded us all sorts of convenience. But what it's also done is allow people the ability to no longer have to communicate face to face. So I talk a lot about when, when asking forgiveness for something, it's imperative that you, you do your best to do it face to face. And if you can't do it face to face, then, you know, the next best thing is a phone call. And if you can't do a phone call, an email, but, but to, to, you know, leaving, leaving a message on someone's uh, voicemail, saying, hey, I got, I got drunk last night, said something stupid, and I'm sorry. That, that doesn't cut it. You know, you know, Sean, and that's the world we live in now. I, I think people love to do these things. I think people love to drop a person by a text. They love to do things by, by doing these things because they're afraid to talk yep. to a person to their face. And I, I think that is a bad thing. I, I think really we grow because we listen to people and, and we grow in situations where we communicate uh, either eye to eye, face to face or it, by it Zoom. To piggyback on that, though, we, we grow, too, when you know you have to have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody because you were in the wrong and transgressed, and you face it down, and you do it. I mean, you know, uh, nobody likes to have an uncomfortable conversation where they know that they were, you know, in the wrong. And, and my experience has been that most of the time, almost without fail, if you if you apologize and ask forgiveness from somebody with earnestness and honesty and a place of wanting to heal the damage that was done, most of the time people are receptive. And it doesn't mean all the time. And all you can do is try your best. But um, you know, I, I, I think it's an incredible way of, of demonstrating your character. And building character is doing what is difficult when you don't want to do it. Because, look, you know, it, it's the easiest thing in the world to do something, you know, uh, crappy and not 
apologize to somebody. You just don't need to see them anymore, communicate with them anymore. And a lot of people do that. They, they bounce from one relationship to another. So I would, I would challenge people that if you find that you are, you know, recirculating groups of friends every year, or you're, you know, you're constantly in and out of relationships, I, I would say, take a look at, at how you're relating to people, friends and significant others when you need to apologize and ask forgiveness, are you, are you doing it or are you simply just doing a geographic and picking up your bags and moving on to the next group or person? Well, and this other trend now of ghosting people, just yeah. not showing up anymore. Yeah. I, I think that's a horrendous trend and so it horrendous. doesn't do well for our society. No. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I really worry a lot about the younger generation who, because of COVID, has had to uh, conduct school by Zoom for over a year. You know, the, the lack of socialization, the lack of, you know, interacting uh, in person with people, I think is, is going to have some really damaging effects. And I, I think that it's really important and incumbent on parents to be aware of that and realize that, that you know, uh, this remote learning has most likely had a deleterious effect on children's ability to socialize. And, and, you know, the parents need to kind of pick up slack and uh, not allow them to slip into being somebody who feels most comfortable communicating, uh, you know, through it, through a screen. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Sean Cannon. He has written the book called The Way of the Cobra. I don't think I'm going to get it up there. I'm going to get it up there. Yes, it's sort of coming in and coming out. Sean might be able to show it better than I can. But the key is, this is one of the 10 best books of this decade. And I think you need a copy of it. So, Sean, how can they get a copy? So, uh, you can get a copy at one place and one place only. It's wayofthecobra.com. And I ship all over the world, which I really love because it is given, you know, it's, it's created a sense of community. I hear from people daily from all over the world, uh, how the book is allowing them to make incredible breakthroughs. And, uh, I, I really would urge everybody who is looking to not only achieve their goals, but to, you know, just to become the, 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 the best, most connected version of yourself possible. So you go to wayofthecobra.com. The book concentrates on many things. It's really about a a way of life. And the first thing I want to concentrate on is grit or tenacity, which means courage, stamina, strength. But it also means character to persist, going through setbacks and pursuing your goals. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, in the book, I, I say repeatedly that character is everything. Your life is almost entirely defined by your character. And so you need to guard it very carefully. Uh, grit and tenacity, uh, you defined it perfectly. Um, you know, and one of the ways that, that people can, uh, the grit and tenacity are so important. And, and what, what is the foundation for them? a really strong why and and a why is that thing that gets you out of bed in the morning 
at five o'clock in the morning, impassioned with life, like you can't wait to get the day started. It's the thing when you've had your ass kicked that gets you up off the ground and back into the fight. And I'm just going to interject for a minute. There's one phenomenal speaker. I forget its name. And he says, it's all about the what. It's not all about the what. It's about the why. About the why. <laughs> it's about the why. Um, you know, my, I had a martial arts teacher who used to say, uh, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. And so determining what your why is, is absolutely crucial to achieving your success. And, you know, for me, um, I believe in having a, 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 a natural manifestation of my why. Mine's my wedding ring. All I have to do is look down at my wedding ring. It reminds me of my commitment to my wife. I never want to see the look of disappointment or buyer's remorse in her eyes. It reminds me of my connection and why I do what I do. That's my, that's my first why. My second why is the fact that I truly love to inspire people. So when the going gets tough, and believe me, it will get tough, um, and you need to exude grit and tenacity, you know, when you're slogging through and you're not getting the external uh, uh, bells and whistles and, and rewards that we all want in life, it's what lets you keep in the game. It lets, it, your why is what's going to fuel you towards your success, yeah, exactly. And, and you talk about in your book, Sean, uh, the five horsemen of the apocalypse and things that get in the way of your character development. Uh, number one is scheduling or time management, that you really don't uh, use the proper time to become the person you are or to do the things you need to do. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Well, look, if you don't run the day, the day is going to run you. Okay. Time management is critical to being successful. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why people struggle with time management. <clears throat> One of the biggest and easiest is their inability to say no. No is an incredibly powerful word. You know, you're not doing anyone a favor by saying yes to everything because all you wind up doing is doing it poorly. Uh, and, and ultimately, it, it engenders resentment from other people. Um, I, again, I told you I really like to give nuts and bolts solutions and strategies. One of the biggest things that caused a profound difference in my life was um, creating a morning ritual. Um, getting up early in the morning is utterly critical to being successful. And I'll tell you why. If you can reclaim a couple hours in the morning, Start your day in gratitude for me. And this isn't a theological discussion, but for me, you know, I start my day on my knees, praying, thinking of five things that I'm grateful for, because if you're living in gratitude, then you're in the present. Uh, after that, I do a little meditating. Meditating, uh, I, I think, scares a lot of people, and it's, it's really not as difficult. And there's lots of ways of doing it, which I won't go into right here. But what it does is it shuts out that bombastic monkey chatter that you know, bombards us with all sorts of distraction and it centers you, it gets you ready for the day. Um, uh, scheduling, scheduling is critical uh, to, to marshal out your time because we all finite uh, amount of time and, and, you know, you, you have to be judicious with it. Um, another thing that I talk about, uh, uh, I know I'm veering off just a little bit, but I'll just name, name one more is, is reading. You know, reading is really critical. Um, reading is a great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, if you are incarcerated, whatever. You can read the thoughts of great men and 
women. You can travel to places that you may never uh, think that you'd be able to travel to, and it expands your life. And by, by simply reading, you know, 10, 15 pages a day, by the end of a year, you've read thousands of pages of something and you've dramatically increased your knowledge. Uh, but, but to get back to what you said, yeah, scheduling is critical. Scheduling is critical, and I think it's one of the most important things we do, and it's something we have to rise above, because if you don't, you're going to have problems with everything you do. Uh, Another thing that holds us back is laziness. Do you remember writing about that? I do. I I basically said, look, if you're reading this book, chances are you're not probably overly lazy. You're probably normally lazy. Listen. Uh, uh, laziness is something that we, we all deal with. Um, and you know, one of, one of the strategies to, uh, one of the strategies that I use to combat laziness, um, I'm not, I'm not a real lazy person, but, um, I make deals with myself. I'm, I'm a firm believer that self bribery is a wonderful tool. And, you know, if I want to do something or if I want to go, uh, have some free time to go, you know, take myself on a date where I go see, you know, a movie and lunch on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. And mind you, I don't do that very often. You know, I will say, okay, I've got to get everything done that I need to get done and get prepped for my following week. And then if, if, and only if I do that, then I get to do this. Or if there's something that I, I want, that's, you know, that's, um, something that you would buy, I'll tie it to the completion of, of a certain task or goal. I never underestimate self bribery. I think it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing and it can be highly effective. I, I think that's a great technique, Sean. One of the last ones I want to cover before we end today is yeah. procrastination, because I think many of the world, at least a large part of the world now, procrastinates. And I think that is one of the most deadly horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's procrastination is kind of like laziness is uh, uh, first cousin, right? Um, two of the things I talk about uh, in the book are external distractions. I talk about thieves of time and emotional vampires. And thieves of time are uh, every, everything from, you know, watching way too much uh, uh, news on TV, which I was very guilty of, uh, to, uh, you know, all sorts of things that are pernicious. And before you know it, you've wasted a major part of your day uh, doing them, whether it's too much time playing Candy Crush or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, emotional vampires often come in the form of people that we love. I mean, you know, everyone's got that aunt or uncle. You get on the phone with them and you say, hey, how you feeling? Well, that's a mistake because they keep you on the phone for 30 minutes telling you. And, you know, people will drain you emotionally. And we have to be very uh, aware in our life of those things that are sapping our lifeblood, sapping our energy. And, and it's, I'm not saying don't listen to your aunt or uncle who's not feeling well, but also, you know, be aware of how much time certain things in your day are taking and take a real good hard look at them and see where you can uh, tighten up your game there because that really helps procrastination too, because it gets into that whole, oh, I don't have any time to do this. Well, you'd have a lot more time, you know, if you didn't spend 45 minutes 
you know, texting with your, your friend about, you know, inane stuff. And so, Sean, we're yeah. we're just getting to our end here. Our next guest has popped in a couple of times. Okay. You saw her there, and we need to move on. Absolutely, Sean. How can people get a copy of your book? Well, Dr. Leka, they can go to uh, wayofthecobra.com. Uh, they can also follow me on Instagram, which is Sean.Kanan, or at Twitter, which is at Sean And uh, I do my very best to try and respond to everybody who contacts me. Sean, you are an amazing guy, and I want to encourage you to keep up the amazing work that you're doing. Uh, I, I hope that you won't end with just a book for the way of the Cobra. I would love you to start with a way of the Cobra club, a way of the Cobra mentors, a way of the Cobra stuff, because I think there's far more to this book than just a book. It's all coming, Dr. Leica. And it it was such a pleasure meeting you. And I really look forward to a time when we can meet in person. I would really love to shake your hand and say hi. Thank you so much. I think I hope we could get together for more than that. Uh, One thing, when I do get down to Hollywood, I like to spend some time with some of my friends there. Last time I was down, I spent some time with Kevin E. West who helped me with that same celebrity thing that we did for the food bank. And I would love to spend some time with you when I pop down there again. Uh, That'll be after this COVID surge happens. I'm not going to go down while Omicron is, is raising its ugly head. Well, I would be honored. I know you have your next guest, so I want to wish you and everyone who's watching the show a wonderful, fantastic day. Unleash your inner badass. Take care of yourself, doctor. Sean, love you. Stay well. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Did you know that you can get a free copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life? Yep. Just visit 13gpnow.ca and we'll send it right to you. That's the number 13, gpnow.ca. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next week. Have a fantastic day. 